Hello world, this is Stephen Francis, and you're listening to the Humble and Honest Podcast. Today's episode is with Jonathan Merrick. He is one of America's most trusted and popular writers on religion, culture, and politics. He's an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, and is the author of several critically acclaimed books, including Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them, one of my personal favorites of 2019. Today, I got the chance to talk with Jonathan about a lot of things. And let me say this first and foremost. I believe that what Jonathan says is very insightful, and there are some of you that may feel inspired, and there's some of you that may feel offended. Either way, I believe this is a conversation that needs to be talked about amongst Christians in a humble and honest way. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation about preachers and sneakers, Liberty University, and homosexuality in the church, all with Jonathan Merrick. Jonathan Merrick, so honored to have you on the Humble and Honest podcast today. The pleasure is all mine. Listen, Jonathan, I have so many great things to say about you, but I first want the people that are listening that maybe not know you to get to know you. So can you quickly or take all the time you want? I'm just grateful to have a conversation with you. Tell us your story. Who is Jonathan Merritt? And also, how did he get to the place of influence that he is today? I think the first thing that I would say is that you can't understand who a person is unless you understand where a person comes from, because we are all contextualized beings. We're a product to some extent of where we've come from, who has raised us, what has happened to us, the the scripts that have animated our lives. And so I grew up with a Southern middle class, upper middle class, evangelical, Southern Baptist, frankly, script. I grew up in a Southern Baptist pastor's home. My dad was a televangelist. He was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So when I say Southern Baptist, I mean very, very Southern Baptist. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who wasn't. And so when I went to college, I went to Liberty University. I was very conservative. I, you know, read books by Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity and I you know, really can I watch Bill O'Reilly every night. And I just sort of considered myself to be a, a fairly middle of the road, conservative, Republican, evangelical. Shortly after leaving Liberty, I started to just have a bit of what you might call a conversion experience, a conversion away from the faith that I knew to what I believed was a truer expression of faith. And so there were a series of kind of unlocked doors, if you will, that led me from that place to this place. Shortly after college, I went to seminary twice. And in the second time I went to seminary, I was at Emory University in Atlanta doing a Master of Theology, which sort of straddles the MDiv and the PhD. And while I was there, I was really starting to write, mostly as a Christian writer, not as a secular commentator like I am now. And I published my first book, uh, which was on religion and the environment. And, you know, that was kind of like a gateway drug to everything else that came after that. Because when you start talking about environmentalism, you start talking about poverty. You start talking about justice. You start talking about race. You start talking about food insecurity. You start talking about uh, global economics and foreign policy and domestic agricultural policy. And you start talking about the way that you interpret the Bible and certain difficult passages. And you have to think about anthropology. And you have to think about your theology of God and your theology of creation. And you can begin to see how that issue in a way that a lot of people don't realize, will actually begin to send folks like me on a journey uh, investigating all kinds of things. And so through a series, I would say, these kind of unlocked doors, I began to evolve. And over the years, I I shifted away from being a quote-unquote Christian writer to being a secular religion writer, a writer who writes in secular publications. I'm still very much Christian. But the publications that I write for, by and large, are not. 
And so that sort of is a from conception to the current moment. That's my story. Mm -hmm. Okay. So two things about your story. First off, I also graduated Liberty University, and I could imagine your feelings about that institution is much different today than it is back then. Do you still keep up with the things there? Are you kind of just over it? You've moved on? What, what are your thoughts on LU? Well, I mean, look, in some cases, you can say that the school today, or in some ways, rather, the school today is not the school that it was. Okay, well, you know, that sort of is to state the obvious to some degree. Every institution sort of changes. But I wonder if in many ways the institution that it is today is just the logical end of the institution it always was. I mean, Interesting. founded by Jerry Falwell, a fierce opponent of the civil rights movement, the man who sparked the marriage between evangelicals and the Republican Party, who did so with uh, a man who was divorced, Ronald Reagan, who introduced no-fault divorce in California as governor, who abandoned someone who was believably Christian in Jimmy Carter, and then basically asserted that to be Christian was to vote Republican. And it stuck. So to say to me that here comes a Jerry Falwell Jr., mm-hmm. who has made some of his own compromises in order to remain wed to the Republican Party, well, that's not surprising to me at all. It seems very much like the trajectory that one might take if you were to map it. And I think in that way, Liberty University is, is a microcosm of white American evangelicalism in general. Wow. I never really thought about that. But at the same time, I think you're definitely opening my eyes to see what the trajectory of it was. And, you know, uh, I'm somebody, and I'm sure you're like this too. You got to take the meat and leave the bones. I definitely, I got good education there and transformed there, but there are definitely things today that when I look at it, I, I definitely can say it's problematic. And I definitely do hope for some changes to happen, but I can also see how, you know what, perhaps this was always in the works. Perhaps it's more of a revealing of what it was always supposed to be that people are experiencing. But I don't want to get bogged down too much with that just because I have so many questions for you. So the next thing I do want to ask, and this is a little bit on the lighter note, recently you moved to New York. You said you were in the South and you were originally, if I'm right, you were in Brooklyn and then you moved to the city. Mm Correct. So I got to know for someone that's outside of the city, moving to the city, what are some things that you enjoy doing, places you enjoy eating pre-coronavirus, obviously? The first thing that comes to mind, two things that come to mind is I'm a foodie and I'm a theater junkie. Okay. I love the arts. I see almost everything that comes to Broadway. I see many shows that are not on Broadway, but I see a lot of theater. Most weeks, I see at least a show uh, when I'm in New York. And I love to eat out. I mean, look, uh, you can throw a rock in New York and hit one of the you know, nation's greatest restaurants. The food is, For sure. is just uh, beyond anything that you'll get other places. And many of these great restaurants actually go out of business because it's so hard to stay in business in New York. So you know, this this sense of like, get it while it's good, go try things. If you love food, you can find anything in New York and you can get the best. You know, you can get the best Ethiopian food. You can get the best Thai food, Indian food, steak. So it is a place of profound privilege that I'm able to do that. And at the same time, it's something that gives me a lot of joy. So I cut costs in other ways to to, to, to invest in that. I mean, there are people who, you know, have great electronics. I have an old outdated computer. There are people who have the latest iPhone. I don't. There are people who have, you know, expensive skateboards and they love video games. And for me, it's just not where I invest my money. So it's, it's a place of great privilege, but I think I've also tried to make investments 
in the things that I, I, I realize give me life. Yeah. I do wonder, have you been able to see the Hamilton play yet? I did. I saw it a couple of years ago. Is it as great as people say? I've tried as hard as possible. I'm not getting in. It is great. I have to say it's objectively great. Is it the best show ever made? That's where it becomes, you know, fairly subjective. I've seen a mm-hmm. lot of great shows mm-hmm. and I've been moved by a lot of great shows. The problem with Hamilton is that twofold. One, the original cast was so great and it doesn't, the yeah. original cast is gone. So, for example, if you want to get tickets, if you really want to see Hamilton, I would say go to Chicago. They've got a great theater scene there. It's second to New York. And I'd say the cast there is just as good as New York and the tickets are a lot cheaper. But it's a fantastic show. The only the, the second problem is, is that the element of surprise has been removed because so mm-hmm. many people have either seen snippets of it or pieces of it or they binged on the the album. And so there, there's a difference when um, when it hits you and you don't know what's coming and when something and when art hits you and you're prepared for it. You know, I got to go before the the shortly before coronavirus got so serious, I was able to go to the Modern Museum of Art, which I think is on like 54th Street or something. And they have uh, there the original Starry Night, which is very famous. It's my favorite painting. Yeah. Great painting. But, you know, I had seen it so many times on notebooks and satchels and, you know, prints on people's walls that in some ways I lingered longer on lesser works of art because they still had for me the element of surprise. You know, so it wasn't that the other works were greater. It was just that they were able to surprise me. And so I think that in some ways uh, Hamilton has actually lost a little bit of its element of surprise in the digital age, because theater is something you have to watch it emerge right before you. It's live art. So you do lose something when you see it on the video, but you also lose something about the live performance when you've seen it on video, when you've heard it on audio. And I think that's one of the things that I lament is that I wasn't able to see Hamilton on a blank slate, you know, without Mm -hmm. having, without having been sort of predisposed to see it in a certain way. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely see what you're coming from because I've heard the whole album. I've seen the snippets. There was that whole thing that was going viral the other day where the guy from The Office, I forget his name, but he managed to get all the original cast to perform a song for this person that was stuck at home and stuff like that. So, yeah, it definitely would be different seeing it live now, knowing all the things that I've seen offhand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I only bring up New York also because not only do I think it's the greatest city in the world, but you've definitely have been making a lot of moves. I know you've been writing your book and you've been speaking in different areas. And something that you brought up the other day was uh, Samaritan's Purse Mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I thought you had some very interesting viewpoints on that organization in the city. Do you mind sharing some of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Samaritan's Purse opened a hospital in Central Park, and people were not all that happy about uh, some people. We, we couch this by saying some people were not all that happy with, you know, this particular evangelical organization running a COVID hospital in New York City, they partnered with Mount Sinai, which is a very reputable hospital. And Mount Sinai began to investigate. And then as a result, they got, they got a little bit worried themselves because Samaritan's Purse has particular positions on LGBT marriage, for example. They, I would say, have particular positions on the way that conversion might or might not be a part of their humanitarian work, which has gotten them in, in, in quite a bit of trouble in, in the past. He, he, Samaritan's Purse also requires that in order to volunteer, everybody has to sign a statement of faith, which includes saying that you're anti-gay marriage. Their found, not, pardon me, their, their CEO and president, Franklin Graham, is literally like a wind-up, you know, chatter toy of controversy. 
the man opens his mouth and, and, you know, something offensive falls out. And he said, for example, that we should treat Muslims in the United States the way that we treated Germans and, and the Japanese after World War II. And for those who don't remember, we put the Japanese in internment camps in concentration camps. We actually had to pay reparations for that in the United States. So to say these horrible things and to know that Franklin Graham was appointed as uh, the lead, the manager, the chief, the guy who was running the operation, made a lot of New Yorkers uh, feel a little bit uncomfortable. They, they began to, to wonder if that was really the best choice for the city, whether they would get equal treatment there, if they had black or brown skin, if they were if they were not Christian, if they were Muslim, if they were LGBT, you know, if a transgender person gets sent in there, will they receive the same level of care they didn't know? And I'll say this, I have felt for a long time that Samaritan's Purse is a, is a good organization. They, they do a lot of, of good work on balance. But the fact remains that many New Yorkers have logical reasons to say, I feel a little bit uncomfortable or skeptical. And what, what to me is the height of Christian privilege is the notion that you can speak how you want to speak, that you can let your, 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 your spokesperson speak how he wants to speak, that you can take absolutely reprehensible positions on issues and that you can articulate those in the public and on social media and that you shouldn't be held accountable for them. That nobody has the right to form negative opinions about you, that nobody has the right to feel skeptical about you because you're a Christian, you should get a pass. Sorry, I have to disagree with that. When you, when you call people abominable, when you say that they are lesser classes of people, when you say that they are sinful, that they're the objects of God's judgment, that they're going to go to hell, that they should be treated in ways that are less than humane. I think it makes absolute sense that people in those categories would feel unsafe by your very presence. And if you don't realize that yourself, it's perhaps an indication that you have become so entrenched in a cocoon of your own theology and of your own politics that you just simply can't understand the way the rest of the world thinks. Hey world, this episode is brought to you with the help of Ambo TV. Ambo TV brings inspirational live sermons from the most captivating next generation Christian pastors, along with in-studio discussion to a broad multi-platform audience. Check out ambotv.com and at Ambo Network via social media to see all the great sermons and pastors that they showcase, including yours truly, Stephen Francis. For now though, let's get back into this conversation with Jonathan Merritt. pretty powerful statement. And, you know, you're someone that's always never shied away from controversy. That's one of the things I respect so much about you. So in light of that also, you know, I do want to know what your view is on the LGBTQ situation with the church. I remember you spoke for Lauren Daigle and, and Lauren Daigle had a unique perspective on it. And I think I don't want to put words in your mouth. Can you can you recap what you said in regards to the Lauren Daigle situation and then also how churches should treat LGBTQ, especially in light of all the things that are happening right now that may cause for people of that community to be weary of the church? Yeah, that's a great question, because you've actually you in the first you've identified one piece of my thinking about how the church should handle this. And in the, the second question, which I'll answer, you, you've kind of identified the, the other two pieces. So Lauren Daigle, for those who don't know, is a very popular Christian pop singer, songwriter. And she went on to The Ellen Show. And a lot of people were upset that she went on to The Ellen Show because Ellen is a lesbian. You know, I remember talking about liberty back in the day. I remember Jerry Falwell uh, at Thomas Road Baptist Church on Sunday mornings. And I think in convocation, he would refer to Ellen DeGeneres as Ellen Degenerate, to chide her, to mock her as a lesbian woman. So it makes sense to me that people who are the children 
of those kinds of bigoted views and misbehaviors. The people who are the recipients, that they are the legacy of that, would also react against a person like Lauren Daigle going on the show. So people were very outraged. I could say more about that, of why we have this perspective of people like gays and lesbians and why the church has come to see them as as almost a disease in and of themselves, that if regular Christians, and by regular I mean typically straight white Christians, evangelical Christians, come into contact with them, somehow their uncleanness, maybe you're picking up on how Old Testament this may feel, their uncleanness will kind of rub off on us. So we teach our, our children to stay away from people like that, that we disagree with in some way, because they may corrupt us. And those kinds of fear tactics were used in this situation. Lauren Daigle was pressed on a radio interview about what her view was, and she basically said, I'm thinking about it. And people were very upset by that. People wanted her to say, you're in or you're out, you're pro or you're against. And for her to say, I'm really giving it a lot of thought was not acceptable. People saw that as tantamount to cowardice, as tantamount to capitulation, as a tantamount to taking on a so-called cultural perspective rather than a so-called biblical perspective. And I just called bunk on the whole thing because the Bible has and Christian history has a rich tradition of what we might call discernment. And discernment is a an active, not a passive, a courageous, not a cowardly position where Christians are able to say, I don't know, I'm thinking about it. And what I realize is, is that somewhere along the line, white conservative American Christians murdered the spiritual discipline of discernment. They chased it out of the room. They said there was no space for it, particularly when it comes to culture warring issues. We go back to Jerry Falwell. There was a kind of shuffling of the deck that happened in the 1970s in America in response to the cultural revolutions of the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the rise of a second wave feminism, the secularization that was happening in the courts where they banned praying in public schools and Bible reading in public schools, you know, the legalization of, of Roe v. Wade. And a lot of people would say, in fact, one of the, the chief people to argue this is a guy named Randall Balmer, who teaches at Dartmouth, and he wrote a piece in Politico magazine about this, that it was always about racism. It was really always about civil rights. But we, you know, the evangelicals, white evangelicals sort of knew they couldn't win on that, but they knew they could win on sex. And sex touched on gender, gender norms, gender roles. It touched on sexuality. It touched on marriage. It touched on pornography. It touched on divorce. It touched on abortion. It touched on birth control. And so by hiding some of the racist roots of the religious right movement, and instead claiming it was all about abortion and gay marriage, they reshuffled the deck. And they said, these things matter the most. And so because someone arbitrarily argued that those things mattered the most, it was like those things got put on a list somewhere. And someone said, you're not allowed to have any discernment about any of these things. We know the position your only job is to go out and defend it. And uh, I think that that is a uniquely unchristian way of handling issues that have very personal implications. To your second uh, question, how do I think they should treat this issue? Well, I'd say two things. It depends what kind of church you are. If you're the type of church that makes space for LGBT relationships and marriage, then I think you either you either have to actively have ongoing conversations and even celebrate unions in the same way you would celebrate any type of union, any type of love. Uh, I think these that theology naturally leads people to say those types of theologies, I don't want to say they're monolithic, but those types of theologies would lead you to say, wherever we find love, we find God. So we can celebrate that love 
whenever we see it. But then there's that sort of question of what if you don't, you know, I live at an Episcopal seminary. I go to a church that makes space for these kinds of things. So that's where we are. We, if you're LGBT and you go to my church, you can preach, you can sing, you can serve communion, you can greet at the door, you can do anything that anybody else can do. Uh, it's no different than, than anything else. And by the way, we were once having these same conversations, and I'm not, I'm not conflating. I know there's so many problems with conflating race and sexuality. Those conversations have happened very differently in the culture. There's a kind of privilege that LGBT people have because they can hide their sexual orientation in a way that a person with black or brown skin can't. So I'm not conflating these things. I'm just saying when the civil rights movement, before the civil rights movement happened, we were having many of these same conversations. Well, you've got a white church and a black person shows up. Should they be allowed to serve? Can they teach? Will you perform an interracial marriage? These were, we were having these same types of conversations. So we have these kinds of marked out, we have a precedent here to think about how churches would interact. I think another way to think about how they might interact if they're more conservative, that's even more constructive than race issues is to look at divorce. You know, there was a time in the 1950s where you couldn't say in a pulpit, you know, if you're married this morning, if you're single this morning, if you're divorced this morning, you couldn't say that. You'd be thrown out of that church in a conservative church. Every mention of divorce had to immediately be followed up with your condemnation of divorce. And what we realized was, you know, there are a lot of views on this. And most of the views on this are connected in some way to scripture and to love for the so-called other. And so we can focus instead on what it means to love people who are getting a divorce, even if we assert certain things about the ethics of divorce or the morality of divorce. And I don't see any reason why conservative churches can't say, you know, we have a view, we may have a view on our staff or in our denomination about this, but we are not going to allow that to create barriers to you being a part of this community, to you having a seat at this table. And so we are going to love you and welcome you and invite your perspective into this community, even if on paper we have uh, we draw a particular line about how we interpret the text. It, it's not something about which we have to agree in order to accept you, to welcome you here. And I, I don't see any reason why conservative churches can't take that perspective. I'm already seeing it, by the way, and that really is the future, even for conservative churches. We're already seeing in some of the most conservative churches in America, you have, when I, when I was Southern Baptist, back when I was serving at a church, a Southern Baptist church, you could be a greeter and be LGBTQ. You couldn't teach. So they divided up teaching roles or what they would call leadership roles and service roles. So we've kind of created a, a hierarchy that does not work or do, is not sustainable, where we've said, you're good enough for this, but not for that. You're good enough to serve at the door. You can vacuum the worship center or the hallways. We will take your money, but you can't teach people or you're not trustworthy to work um, with children. And I just think that that is kind of a transitional phase. It's an intermediate phase that will get us from where we are to where we, where we probably will go, which is some kind of inclusion despite whatever a person's views about LGBT relationships or marriage might be, and also a large, a healthy respect for people who are in periods of discernment. That's very profound. When people come to you that are conservative, because I'm sure you, and again, 
seeing and following you, you have people on conservative side, very liberal side. When people come to you and say, Jonathan, what about this in the Bible that says about this issue? What's your response to them? Do Is that even where you have your arguments or, or do you go somewhere else? I'm curious. Well, I look, I, I love the Bible and evangelicalism dies hard in me. Everything I do is rooted in the text. And I can only understand this issue as a Christian if I have a conversation about the text. There's just no way around that for me. So I think you have to have this conversation. Look, you have to have this conversation in the same way you have a conversation about slavery or any other difficult issue. Somebody says to me, you're against slavery. Yep. Where do you get that in the Bible? That's a really good question. Because you won't find a Bible verse that says really anything negative about slavery. Certainly not in the first two-thirds of it. And even when you get after that, you find exhortations of it. It's almost assumed. It's assumed that slavery would... Nobody is even asking the question. You know, when, when Paul says, even if your master beats you, go back to your master and serve that master as if you're serving the Lord himself. Nobody stood up and said, wait a minute, do you think that it's wrong for a person to own another human? Nobody even raised that question. So I suppose you could read the Bible in a strictly literal way and come away with a particular view of LGBTQ relationships that takes a very hard line, that condemns them as sinners. But I don't see how that hermeneutic creates any space for the equality of women, the integration of the races, all of these other things that we that we have a, a particular views on, right? Passivism, any of these things, because the Bible is not going to do that work for you with that kind of hermeneutic. It's going to basically lead you to a first century Greco-Roman and Jewish sexual ethic and race ethic that is uncontextualized by modern science, by modern sociology, by the things that we now know to be true. And we shouldn't expect the text to do otherwise. But I still think that the text is inspired and meaningful and that we can, each of these texts that are so-called problematic texts can still teach us a heck of a lot about what it means to follow Jesus. So to answer your question more directly, if someone asks me, what do I think, uh, what, how, Jonathan, how do, you, how do you deal with the text? I would say, I'm not giving you a straight answer. I'm going to have a series of conversations with you. Why? Because I don't want you to just, whatever my answer is, I don't want to just spoon feed that to you. I don't want your view to be the result of my um, ability to dominate you in an argument. Because if I can argue you into believing what I believe, someone else can argue out of believing what I believe. That's very true. So instead of that, what I would what I would do is is one, I would I'd, well I'd have a conversation with you, and in that conversation, I would do at least two things. One, I would present you with facts that you might not have encountered before. And two, I would ask as many questions as assertions that I would make. I would want, I would want half of my sentences to end in a question mark. I'd want you to do that work with me. You know what? Maybe you'd teach me something. Maybe you would change your mind. So I wouldn't just do it as a kind of neat rhetorical trick for convincing you to come to my view, but thinking that you got there on your own. I have to enter into this conversation also being willing to consider facts that you might bring that I haven't considered. But for example, I might say to someone, did you know that the word homosexual never appeared in any English translation of any Bible in any Christian community in history until the 1940s. Does that fact make you curious about anything? Would that fact lead you to want to investigate anything? 
Are, are you curious about why that is? Why after almost two millennia of Christian history, we, we, we began to tweak certain words in certain ways. Why didn't we do that before? What was there before? How did we understand that word prior to this? How did the people who originally spoke those words, which are not the words we're speaking in English, how did they understand those words? These are questions that most people are not asking. They're reading the Bible. They're reading it flatly. They're reading it woodenly. They're taking it to mean what somebody else has told them to mean. They are not doing rigorous historical, ethical, moral, uh, sociological, cultural explorations, and they're not asking these hard questions, and they're not asking these questions with a full range of the facts. So I find that the best thing to do is ask a question, see where people go, and release your desire that they end up in a particular place. You know, if I ask you that question and you give me a terse answer and you end up believing what you believe to begin with, so be it. I don't want to develop a codependent relationship with you where your beliefs now somehow, you, you know, rob me of sleep. I'm not accountable for what you believe. I'm happy to be a thought partner as a brother in Christ, but it's not on me to make sure you work out your salvation in such a way that we agree. It's just not, it's just not on my radar. So that, that would be the approach that that I would take. Thank you for sharing that. You know, something else about you is you've you've called out these things and you've been in public platforms. You're a writer for The Atlantic, correct? And also, I, I believe you've been on CNN and different platforms like that as well, speaking up on several different issues, not just this one specifically. But in your history, you've called out people like Mark Driscoll, You've called out people like Hobby Lobby. And I'm curious, especially now hearing your approach to things where, and, and again, I respect this about you because it's, you speak from your perspective, but you're, you seem like you're always willing to learn. At least that's the perception that you give off. Have you been able to have any conversations with any of those people or anything else that you've brought up in, in your time of, of influence that kind of changed your perspective or at least brought some reconciliation with the things that you've called out? Or has it been like anytime you say something, someone just doubles down and stays on their side? Yeah. It varies. It varies. Mm -hmm. It depends on the person. If the person is a fundamentalist, there are certain types of tripwires. And there are certain conversations that you cannot have without tripping those tripwires. And I get that. And I am not interested in having those conversations with those types of people. You know, there's a, speaking of discernment, there are two verses in the book of Proverbs that come sort of um, subsequently to each other. One says, do not answer a fool according to their folly, lest they hate you, despise you, right? Another one says, answer a, cool, a fool according to their folly, lest they continue in their ways. Well, these things are, are contradictions of each other if we just read them flatly. I don't read them flatly. I think there's deep wisdom in each one and deep wisdom in their parents. And there's this kind of notion that a fool is not a fool is not a fool. There are people who are ignorant and willing to learn. And there are people who are ignorant and want to remain so. If I encounter someone who is uh, the first one, I want to have a conversation. If uh, I encounter the type of person who is the second, then no, I don't. I don't want to have a conversation. I... I'm always trying to live in such a way that I become like the second person and not the first. And frankly, I think my life bears it out. I meet a lot of people who are raised just like me, who are evangelical. And they say, you know, you're just as stubborn as I am. You don't want to change your mind and I don't want to change my mind. And I think to myself, you know, there's one difference between you and me. I used to be like you. I used to think like you. You didn't used to be like me and you didn't used to think like me. You've always thought like you. And my life has displayed, I think, a kind of trajectory 
And the story, the lesson that speaks to me is that I am staying malleable. You know, there is a, there's a quote by, I want to say it's Christian Wyman. And he says in his quote, something to the effect, you know, if you believe now what you believed five years ago, or even 15 years ago, what are you doing? You know, I, I, I meet so many people sometimes and I think, how cool that you figured out life and God and church and community when you were a 24-year-old seminary student. What a gift that must be. I didn't get that gift. I didn't get all the answers downloaded to me from a Wayne Grudem systematic theology tome when I was doing my MDiv work, unfortunately. I didn't. I didn't. I have to keep working this out. I have to keep refining this. But, you know, for people who believe that that they were sort of downloaded a perfect theology that should not be touched or challenged in their 20s, I go, cool. You don't need me to challenge that. Uh, that's just going to make you mad at me and me mad at you. So I'm always uh, kind of doing a, a, a triaging of conversation partners. And if I believe that other people, if I believe that I really am trying to be malleable and open and teachable, and I believe other people are too, yeah, then I think it's time to have a conversation. I love that. You know, another thing that you've also, now correct me if I'm wrong about this, mm -hmm. but you were kind of the person that put the battery in the back of the preachers and sneakers movement. And you were at least one of the people that were popular that really promoted this. And I don't know if it's true, but you might be one of the people that helped get the book deal for Preachers and Sneakers as well. Mm -hmm. So just for anyone, again, that may not know you, can you just briefly share why you believe Preachers and Sneakers is important and why you believe the book is important for sure that is on the way? Well, when it first started, I was very ill and a friend of mine uh, told me, Another author friend was like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. You would love this. And the guy had like two or 3,000 followers at the time. And I thought we should get this off the ground because I felt like it was doing in, a, in an artistic, actually, visual way, raising really provocative questions. And that's what I do. I raise really provocative questions, mostly with words either spoken or written, but this guy was producing, he was showing a photo of a man of God or a woman of God, so to speak, a preacher, a worship leader, someone that you would naturally place, uh, you would kind of give them the presumption of goodness. And then he would show a photo of a pair of sneakers that would be $3,000 something you would naturally ascribe a kind of badness to. And then you would look at that photo and you would see that that person was wearing those sneakers. And it would create in, in you a kind of cognitive dissonance. How does this goodness and this badness interface with each other? And there was no real clean way to make sense of it all. And what you had was a kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? You had two opposing ideas colliding against each other, which gave rise to a new question. And I began to, to see, uh, as I looked at it, that these questions were brilliant and maybe even in some ways more brilliant than this person even realized at the time. And so I began to contact people and to promote it and to ask people to promote it and to call journalist friends and say, you should write an article on this. This is fascinating. And, you know, does that mean that I, that I put the battery in the, pat, in the back? I guess so. But to put a battery in something is not all that remarkable. The battery has to do all the work. People had to connect with it. There had to be a kind of energy. And the, the thing that was remarkable when all of this started to move was not that someone like me 
flicked a domino. It was that all the other dominoes were in place and, you know, they start to fall. And you begin to see that there were all of these other people who were feeling something and seeing something that they hadn't quite articulated, that they hadn't quite put their finger on. And they said, that is it. So when I got to know the individual who heads this up, I was able to finally say, hey, I'm a literary agent, in addition to being a writer, who represents a select, just a handful of people on projects that I feel like really resonate with me. And I said, could I help you develop a book idea? And he said, yeah. So we worked together. I began to really you know, ask him a lot of questions and work on this content. And over many months, we developed a book idea that would take these questions and move them down the field a little bit, right? It was no longer just provocation. Now we would take these ideas and begin to kind of constructively, he would begin to constructively, I'm not writing the book, he is. He would begin to kind of constructively suggest some answers and take that conversation a step further because I don't think that it has gone as far as it could go. I don't think the questions have been answered to the depth that they should or should have been. And so that book uh, now will come out, it looks like in the fall of uh, 2021, when actually when my next book comes out, it should come out. So we'll see. That's what I would say. We'll see. Hey world, I hope you're enjoying this conversation so far. I want to let you know of a couple ways you can support the show. If you haven't already, Please be sure to subscribe, share, leave a review for the podcast so more people get the chance to know about it. Also, you can be a contributor through Patreon. For as low as $1 a month, you can help support this show and keep these conversations going. As a thank you to all of my Patreon contributors, you guys are going to be getting two bonus episodes through the Patreon platform. That's right. Two episodes of the Humble and Honest podcast only heard on Patreon along with so much more bonus content. Thank you in advance. You can check out the link in the description for the Patreon page. But right now, let's finish up this conversation with Jonathan Merritt. And we're going to talk about your latest book, Speaking God from Scratch, in a moment, and then also this upcoming book, too. But let's just pretend for a moment. Say, you know, this is my first time meeting you, but say we're friends. And I am a pastor, literally, in my life. And what would you say to someone like me mm-hmm. when it comes to this preachers and sneakers thing? And there's all of these things. They were gifts, maybe whatever I do with my money is my business, all of these arguments. What would you say to me, though, as somebody that preaches on Sunday and maybe I do have some nice sneakers? How should I be viewing this in a way that's healthy, in your opinion? Yeah, because here's, here's what I would say. One there's no an answer. There are answers. And I don't have firm lines where I go, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. I mean, look, here's the thing. Somebody says uh, to you, I don't think that it's a bad thing if T.D. Jakes has $500 shoes. And I say, okay, what about if he were wearing $500,000 shoes? Would you have a problem with that? And people go, I would have a problem with that. Where's the line? We don't know where there is. So it's not the kind of ethical issue where you can say $48, okay, $49 and above, not okay. And the idea that we can just sort of treat this like a machine, right? This issue like a machine. and And if we just find the right setting, everything else will work out is not exactly right. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, these are communal questions that I think have to be worked out in communities. And, you know, they raise questions, bigger questions. There's the questions behind the questions, not just should a pastor be able to buy a pair of $500 shoes? Because then you go, well, they were a gift. I didn't spend the money. Well, now we've got a question behind the question. Is it kind? to flaunt in front of people who are by and large uh, not able to purchase those shoes to flaunt that kind of wealth? Uh, Does it communicate subtly 
theologically to someone that if you're a good person, if you're a leader in the church, if you are doing God's work, this is what it looks like. Does it imply something about the, the theological nature of what it means to be blessed? Is it okay to get rich off preaching the gospel? These are questions, right, that we have to ask. And each one, it's a door to a door to a door to a door. But the questions matter. And the willingness to ask those questions matter. But I think most people in the past have been so gun-shy because they didn't know where they would draw the line, $49 or 50 And as a result of not knowing where to draw that line, they didn't want to have a conversation about the line at all. So what I would say is, is I don't know what the answer should be for you. I don't know what the right answer is, but I do know these are the right questions. And if you are wrestling with those questions, nobody asks me to be the Holy Spirit in their lives. So it is not my job to come after uh, someone and make sure that they change their mind. But what I really hope for and what I hope my work in some way does is that it continues to put those questions out in front of people that it makes for those who are comfortable that it would make these questions unavoidable. And for those who are uncomfortable, it would give them permission to ask the questions that are already inside of them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about this as well is obviously a lot of the people that are wearing these very expensive sneakers are also super popular preachers. They attract large numbers of people. And I remember hearing in another interview that you did that you've come across some of these individuals and that's not, and you weren't trying to throw shade and saying that they were frauds, but you also brought up that many of them or some of them are shockingly way more insecure than people might realize and that there needs to be some caution about some of this. What do you think? it should look like for a a pastor that is effective and popular to also be healthy when it comes to this ministry thing? What does it mean to be healthy? That's a good question. I mean, look, you're asking a question that I assume is individualistic. What do they need to do? What do they need to buy or not buy? How do they need to live or not live? I look at this issue in the same way I look at any ethical issue, which is we also have to recognize that there are sort of systemic questions. We have accepted a way of doing church that is top-heavy. It is institutionalized. It requires a lot of money to keep running. And it mirrors any other 21st century capitalistic Western system in that it relies on the instrumentalized charisma of celebrity figures in order to survive. That means that you have big celebrities and you've got little celebrities. So a church of 50 can still roll on so long as everybody adores the pastor and doesn't challenge the pastor in the same way that the megachurch uh, can. Now, this level of celebrity pastoring, and even this level of, I would say, uh, accompanying systemic inefficiency is more prevalent in certain churches, in certain types of churches, in certain sizes of churches, and in certain traditions and denominations. So, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll did not just become the Mark Driscoll we know because he was an arrogant jerk who treated people poorly and had a really nasty theology of God and sex and gender, etc. Mark Driscoll also happened because he stepped into a system that would allow and even celebrate and promote a person with that theology of people and sex and God who was an arrogant jerk. 
that there was a system that accelerated him. So for all these people at Mars Hill who went to Mars Hill all these years, who gave their money, who have done this sort of thing, right? All these Acts 29 churches to go to now abandon the guy and throw him out with the trash. That's just scapegoating. Hmm. That makes us feel real good about ourselves. Now we've thrown Mark Driscoll out with the trash. We won't have to look at him. We won't have to read stories about him. And we won't have to ask questions about our own role in perpetuating the systems that platform these kinds of people to begin with. Now, I reject all of that altogether. So what do we have to do? I don't think that we, I think we have to not just answer the question about these pastors so that we scapegoat pastors, that we problematize individuals, so that we create individuals that when our guilt gets too high, we can simply do away with them, call them bad, feel good about ourselves and our own role in this. I think instead we have to get having honest conversations about the kind of systems that we, yes, we, all of us, have either created or tolerated that have opened up a door for this kind of, of epidemic, frankly. Hmm. I'm going to have to chew on that well after this conversation, by the way, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing that. We're running out of time. Quickly, tell us about your current book, Speaking God from Scratch. And if, do you have any also teasers of your upcoming book that's coming in 2021? I know you've been working on it for a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so Learning to Speak God from Scratch came out in 2018. I think it was 2018. Yeah, 2018 it came out. And this new book will be out, I think, in 20 later in 2021. Learning to Speak God from Scratch was, a, you know, you're talking about transformation it's a book that will help people in this period of transformation and discernment. It gives people permission to say, hey, you're talking about sin in this way. Is that really helpful? Is that really what I mean when I say that? It gives people the tools to effectively answer a question that most people are not asking, which is, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? What am I actually saying when I'm saying what I'm saying, when I use this this religious language, this sacred speech? And so I'm hopeful that that book, that book continues to sell. So I, I, it's finding a, a readership. But this next book, uh, the working title is The Courage to Be Human, and it will be even another step. Not, what, not just what does it look like to speak God, but what does it look like to invite God into your most sensitive places and to let God do what God does best, which is heal? Yeah. And that's what this book's about. And uh, I've just started working on it. In fact, I'm sitting here holding 78 pages, all that now I'm trying to like, you know, leave notes on. But I've got these 78 pages that I'm trying to sort out of 40,000 words of notes. And then I will actually sit down and write it. It won't take me long to write it once I've got all the notes down. But what I hope this book does is to lead people on a journey to find the bravery they need to heal from the pain that they've endured and that they've hid and that they've une they, they have left unacknowledged for far too long. Every person listening to this has had it. They've had the person walk out the door who they love so deeply. They've had things said to them, about them, and over them that have stuck with them. They have been abandoned and betrayed and abused. And most people don't talk about those things, not on a regular basis. They talk about the good things, but they don't talk about the dark and dangerous things. And I think that's where the work lies. I think that's where God wants to really get into and, and do something special. What does it mean to access those places? What does it mean to open those places up and to invite God in and to see a miracle happen? What does it mean to build a kind of supernatural resilience to the pain that is now a sojourner in life? with us that we can't get rid of, but we can kind of learn to live alongside of. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I've lived that. I'm an abuse survivor. 
several times over. I was very publicly outed. I have been beat up more times than I can count by people who I have loved and trusted. I get name called for a living. I've been in, in relationships with people who are liars and cheaters who have hit me. And I've had to heal from all of that. I've been spiritually abused by the church. I have disappointments that I couldn't even begin to enumerate, which means I'm a lot like the people who are listening. And a few years ago, I finally said enough is enough. And I, I want to begin to really heal. I want to really begin to kind of open up these boxes and to see what work might need to be done. And this book is about the work that I've done and the work that I want to invite other people into. So powerful. Well, thank you so much for being someone that was willing to tell that story and to give people hope that they can find freedom as well. And thank you also for taking the time to have this conversation. It's my pleasure as always. Thank you, friend. Wow. A thought-provoking conversation with a thought-provoking Christian leader. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show today. And guys, check out his latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them Wherever You Get Your Literature. Also, check out some of the other things that Jonathan has been up to. I made sure to put a bunch of links in the description for this episode to see some of the great work that he is doing for The Atlantic and other things. And guys, I hope above all that you will join me again next time on the next episode of the Humble and Honest Podcast. Mm-hmm.